So autism speaks. Well, can autism speak? And if autism can speak, how does autism speak to Windsor Baptist Church uh, today? Or if you had to turn to the Bible to see where autism would speak, speak to us, where would you turn? Uh, and I think that if you're looking to see where the Bible speaks about autism or about disability, then some of the words that St. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians, uh, I think just speak to us about the importance of all disabilities, including autism. Because Paul talks about us as being together as a body, and he says we form one body, and those parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. God has put the body together, giving greater honor to the parts that lacked it. Now you are the body of Christ, and each one of you is part of it. And just, I suppose, those, that phrase, seem to be weaker or indispensable, uh, really struck me this week whenever I was sort of thinking about these verses. So if you're here today, and if you are feeling weak, if you're here today and you have a disability, or you have got somebody in your family with a disability, then can I say to you that Paul writes that the parts that seem weaker to the body here are indispensable. And what a challenge to us to see that things that seem weak are actually indispensable. And it gets even better than that because not only are you indispensable to the whole body, to all of us, but God has actually given greater honor to those parts that lacked it. God honors those folk with disability. God honors those folk with autism. And Paul goes on to say that we can all be part of it. So Heather's now going to come and interview someone who can tell us a little bit more about how uh, we can be part of it. Okay, I'm really delighted today to welcome Cherelle. Please come to join us. Come on ahead, Cherelle. Want to come up here? Thanks very much for being willing to come and join us. Um, you're not usually with us on a Sunday, Cherelle, but we do share um, the same space. So I wonder, could you tell us what brings you every day to Windsor Avenue? Well, I am director of the National Autistic Society, and we are our offices are actually just on Malone Road, so just around the corner from you here. Um, and can you give us an idea of what your daily tasks are there, what you're doing there? Okay, well, my role is extremely varied. Um, uh, we are responsible, my, my role is basically being responsible for the development of services uh, for people with autism and their families in Northern Ireland. So that'll include children, uh, young people, and adults who are on the autism spectrum. So we have 13 branches throughout Northern Ireland. Uh, we run a range of social and leisure activities. We provide family support. We provide adult social groups. And uh, we, we offer training to parents. Uh, we offer training to professionals. And, and sometimes, uh, as well, we will also lobby uh, up at Stormont to ensure that there are better provision for people with autism and their families. So a day could be filling in funding applications for a bit more services, or it could be sent, spent speaking to politicians, or actually physically running some of our services as well. So very, very varied day it can be, depending on the day. Yeah, I'm very busy. Yeah. Okay, so at the end of a day that's obviously been challenging at work, are you able to go home and leave the world of autism behind? Well, uh, 
My, my job is very, is very challenging, especially at these times when money is in short supply and, and services are being cut, but um, it's something I feel passionately about. Um, but you could say that I never really leave it uh, at the door because as well as, as uh, working for the National Autistic Society, um, I am mother to two gorgeous boys, but one of whom, Callum, who's 11, and he has autism. He would be seen as being at the severe end of the autism spectrum, as he also has severe learning disability and other uh, conditions. So really, I suppose you could say that I um, live and breathe and sleep. And those of us who have children with autism with no sleep is sometimes not really on the, on the agenda. Thanks, Ralph, for your honesty with that. Um, I wonder, could you give us an idea just about some of the issues that affect um, mm -hmm. children and adults with autism, mm -hmm. and maybe especially um, some of the families that we've got to know their children are affected by severe learning difficulties, just especially what way it affects them? Okay. Well, aut autism is, I suppose the way in which you could describe it, describe it is as a spectrum condition. So um, you will find that everybody with autism will be different, and how, how autism impacts on them will be different. But what they do have in common is that they will have social and communication difficulties. They will struggle to make sense of the world around, around of them. Uh, some of those who are at the, uh, and when I talk about it being a spectrum condition, it, it encompasses everybody. Some, some people at one end of the spectrum may be able to live relatively independent lives, and then other people at the other end of the spectrum um, will need a lifetime of specialist support. Um, some of the difficulties, as well as the social and communication difficulties that, that people would uh, have who have autism, some of them will also have sensory difficulties, so they might be over or under sensitive to uh, touch, sound, smells, lights. The children and young people that we saw some of the pictures of there, um, who, are, who also attend uh, the South Belfast branch of the National Autistic Society, which Donna is also involved in, um, a lot of them would have additional challenges, so they will have autism and a severe learning disability. Some will have other coexisting conditions such as epilepsy or ADHD. Um, so the world to them is very much a struggle. It is very, very hard for them to understand what, what is going on around them. Often it is very frightening and very um, scary as, as, as they, they can't understand. They, some of them will have little or no speech. So you can imagine how difficult they, that is because they will struggle maybe to get their needs met, to tell you when they're in pain, um, or, or, or even just when they're upset or what they want to do. So, so there, there's a lot of struggles and, and those kind of things make the world very frightening. Um, some of the children will also have profound sensory difficulties. So they'll struggle maybe with loud noises or shrill sounds and that will really hurt their ears. Some of them have, uh, are very sensitive to uh, touch so they need their labels cut out of their clothes because actually a label, while it might sort of just annoy you and me, it might sort of just scratch or whatever to those children, it can really, really hurt them and cause them extreme pain. So those are the kind of, of things that you find that our children um, struggle with them. Some children you may find are sensory seekers, so you'll find that they bang things or, or they're, they're seeking out sensation because their sensory system isn't quite regulated as well. Now, for, for the families, obviously caring for a child with autism who also has a severe learning disability is very intensive, as most of them all require one-to-one -one support and attention at all times. And many of our, our children struggle, struggle with sleep. So some of our families can become very isolated. And society does not always accept or understand our children. So some of the things that other people will take for granted, like going to a soft play area or going out to a restaurant, are things that our families can't do. 
uh, or struggle to do, and that may be because it's too, um, it's too noisy, it's, it's too busy, um, it's basically too overwhelming for a lot of our children, and even things like going on holidays, many people take that for granted, but for our families sometimes that's just too difficult because our children need routine and they need structure in their lives for them to be able to cope. Um, so, so those kind of things you can imagine place a, lo a lot of pressure on, on families. But the other thing that I, that I would say, 11 years ago, I mean, I knew nothing about autism until the force that is Callum, and anybody that knows him, he's a little bundle of activity, well, a big bundle of activity, now he's 11. Um, and he faces all of those challenges that um, I, I have outlined above. But the one thing as well, he never ceases to amaze me or, or to fascinate me with what he, what he can do and the love that he can bring. And, and I find it... I find him infinitely fascinating trying to work out just what is going on and how he thinks and, and feels. Um, and I wonder, would I be as brave if I had all of those challenges and how I would cope? Um, and I think probably not as well as some of our children do. So I'm, I'm really pleased to be here today in the lead up to World Autism Day and, and I thank you for, for actually dedicating this service to, to World Autism because I suppose that, that my great wish, uh, as, as we go forward as well, would be that society would understand, accept and appreciate probably the uniqueness of some of the children and the families that have autism. And I feel very blessed because I've, they've invited me into their lives and I've met the most wonderful children, young people and adults on the spectrum and the families that care for them. That's really helpful, Sherelle. Thank you. Um, in a moment we're going to pray, um, and I wonder could you give us an idea of what things we could be praying for you and the National Autistic Society? Well, um, as I, I suppose one of the things that we're doing at the minute is constantly seeking funding to provide new services. So um, if you could, we have a number of funding applications, so success in those is, is something that we really hope will happen. Uh, we hope to continue and to expand our services and the types of support that we can provide for families. and that. Basically, that society becomes more aware of the needs of people with autism and their families and in turn accepts and supports them. That's brilliant. Thanks very much. I'm going to grab a seat. For the next section of uh, our service, uh, just to, um, we want to concentrate on a passage from the Bible, an encounter with Jesus that a father and a son had. Uh, I'm going to introduce it by taking the role of the father. And then Ben McMullen is gonna come and read the story uh, from the Bible and the words will be on the screen. And then Donna and David and Gordon will come and try and look and work out what those words actually mean to us in Windsor uh, today. So the father's story. My wife and I were delighted. She was expecting and when she delivered, she delivered a son, someone to keep the family name going, someone I could teach the family trade. I would take him to play sports, but more importantly, I would take him to worship, and I'd bring him up in our Jewish faith. Oh, there was fatherly pride and anticipation and all the expectation. But as he grew, it became obvious that there was something that wasn't as it should be. There was something that was within him that made him mute. He didn't, or couldn't, or wouldn't speak. He'd be thrown to the ground, rigid one moment, convulsing the next, foaming at the mouth, grinding his teeth. 
Or he'd be running into the fire, running into uh, the river, obsessed, compulsed. Uh, Life just became impossible in our village. It wasn't so bad when he was little because we could lift him in our arms and pretend he was just a willful baby. But as he grew, he became heavier, stronger, faster, more determined. And we became older, slower, weaker, and more anxious about him. My wife could no longer manage him on her own. I could no longer manage work and caring for him. We are physically exhausted. His convulsions, his compulsions to run into the fire and the water, they are relentless. Day and night we have to restrain him and see my arms, the bruises and the burns to prove it. And you know, it isn't just physical exhaustion. Living in this village with this son of mine is also socially draining. People remove themselves from us. They're scared, scared of being hurt, scared of being embarrassed, not sure what to say, not sure what to do, so they do nothing. For them, the problem lies with us, with my son, and not with them. Other families can get together and celebrate festivals. They can eat together. They can go to market together. They can wash clothes together. We remain alone and isolated. It's just easier that way. And the children that were born at the same time, they laugh at him. Some throw stones, some call him names. And every time I rescue him out of the stream, we're the laughing stock of the village, the brunt of comments, people telling us what we've done wrong, people telling us why this happened to us. Believe me, I have prayed for this to be taken away. I have prayed that my boy would one day be able to speak be able to call me daddy. My faith is not the strongest, but I do believe in God. And maybe that dream is fading, that dream of actually teaching him the scripture, that dream of seeing him initiated into the faith community. And you know, going to worship has become virtually impossible. People would prefer that he wasn't there at all. He just disrupts them, distracts them from their teaching. And they would say, he's not able. What does he get from it? Why are you bothering to bring him here and distracting us? My emotions flood and overwhelm me at times. I love my son dearly. I will protect him from harm as long as I am able. But what happens after that? How can my heart be so full of fear and of hope, of love and of anxiety and of anger, all for the one person and all at the same time? To carry this all alone, all alone, we're not that strong. And you know, I'd heard about this wonder worker, Jesus. I'd heard the crowds are following him everywhere. Just in the village next door, he's healed somebody that was blind. He's made somebody that was deaf to hear. He's taken a whole host of people and he's fed them with one lunchbox. What have I got to lose? So I decided. I decided I would take my son, I would make that dreaded journey, and I would ask Jesus if he could help us. So here I am.
Today's reading is taken from Mark 9, verses 14 to 29, the child with the possessed spirit. When they came to the other disciples, they saw a large crowd around them and the teachers of the law arguing with them. As soon as all of the people saw Jesus, they were overwhelmed with wonder and they ran to greet him. What are you arguing with them about, he asked. A man in the crowd answered, teacher, I bought you my son who is possessed by a spirit. He's been robbed of his speech. Whenever it seizes him, it throws him to the ground. He foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth, and he becomes rigid. I asked your disciples to drive out the spirit, but they could not. You unbelieving generation, Jesus replied, how long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put, you, put up with you? Bring the boy to me. So they bought him. When the spirit saw Jesus, it immediately stopped in the boy with convulsion. He fell to the ground and rolled around, foaming at the mouth. Jesus asked the boy's father, how long has he been like this? From childhood, he answered, it has often thrown him into the fire or into the water to kill him, but you can, can you do anything? Take pity on us, please help us. If you can, said Jesus, everything is possible for one who believes. Immediately the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe, help me overcome unbelief. When Jesus saw that crowd that was running towards the scene, he rebuked the impure spirit. You deaf and mute spirit, he said, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. The spirit shrieked, convulsed him violently, and it came out. The boy looked so much like a corpse that many said, he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him to his feet. He stood up. After Jesus had gone indoors, his disciples asked him privately, why couldn't we drive out the spirit? He replied, this kind came out by prayer. Thanks be to God. Good morning. Um, this is a passage that spoke to me as a mother of a child with autism. That's him on the screen. You've probably seen him running around here. He's probably knocked you over a few times. Um, it spoke to me at one of my darkest times. Um, Mark includes this story in his gospel and describes the boy's problem as some kind of spirit or demon possession. Now, it's really important that we say clearly this morning, we don't associate autism and demon possession in any way. But when I read this passage, some of you do, <laughs> When I read this passage, the boy's behavior just struck me, and I thought, that is Micah. His obsessions, he didn't understand or use any words. He had these compulsions for water and fire. He had no sense of danger, and he would have these meltdowns in public all the time. And that's just the outer behaviors. The implications for the whole family are huge, and I feel this father's pain. Socially ostracized, emotionally drained, physically exhausted, spiritually confused. My husband and I have felt all of these. As we ask the question, is God aware? Does he care? We're going to think about this passage and see what Jesus would say to us through it. But for those of us who are 
those who are with us today because of your link with autism, we want to say to you, thank you. Whatever your beliefs or faith practices, your presence among us and those who will come later are important for us as we answer this question and express our Christian faith. So what does this passage teach us about autism and God's heart for people living with autism? There are three points that we want to make. And the first is that Jesus wants to care for the carer. And here he meets a father who's been disappointed by the followers of Jesus. And the second thing that we want to say here is that Jesus wants children to experience his love. He says, bring the boy to me. And the third thing is that Jesus uses children to teach us lessons. And there are truths for each of us to learn about our humanity, about how we relate to God. And we trust this morning that we will all have something to take away. Imagine the scene, if you know the background, Peter, James and John have been up the mountain with Jesus. And they had a fantastic spiritual experience and caught a vision of God being in control. And they move from the mountaintop to the confusion and the mess of a situation of failure and loss of control. If I were one of those guys, I'd be saying to Jesus, come on, let's head back up the mountain. But Jesus doesn't retreat. He enters into the crowds, the mess, the arguing, the, the boy flailing about on the ground and the cries of this devastated father. He enters the arena and by expressing compassion and care and power and love, he reorganizes the chaos and sets a very different tone. And David's going to tell, or Donna's going to tell us what it's like uh, as Jesus cares for the carer. So the father says to Jesus, I brought my son to you. You were not here. Your disciples could not, or literally they weren't strong enough to deal with it. Here's a disappointed customer. He's come expecting, hoping for something from Jesus, but Jesus isn't even there. And then in his absence, his disciples, the one who are supposed to represent him, they disappoint. The man's priority was to have his son healed, to have this problem taken away. But Jesus saw what the father's real need was. It was pointed out to me that Jesus could have just clicked his fingers and the problem would have disappeared in seconds. He could have done up the mountain. But he chooses not to. Instead, while the boy is still convulsing on the ground, foaming and writhing around, kicking and screaming, the father probably kneeling down beside him, holding him and protecting him, Jesus gets alongside the father and asks a question. How long has he been like this? Now, we believe that Jesus, as God, as creator and sustainer of all things, knows all things, that he knit this boy together in his mother's womb, 
He knew it, but why did he ask the question? How long has he been like this? That question says, I see the facts of what your son is like, but I see more. I see how difficult this is for you as his father, and I can picture each difficult moment that's passed. How long has he been like this? I see each sleepless night, each frustrated meltdown in public, each comment from your neighbor, each tear of grief on each birthday. How long has he been like this? I see each phone call made on his behalf, each meeting with the endless string of professionals who don't do anything, each strategy you have tried. I see how exhausted you are and how difficult it is for you to function every day. How long has he been like this? I am aware, and because I care, I want you to tell me, how long has he been like this? I want to enter into this experience with you, and I'm asking you, and asking you to tell me, how long? So the father enters into a conversation with Jesus that details some of the difficult episodes that having a child like this entails. And the man talks, and Jesus listens and connects with him. And the father's focus becomes less on the desired outcome of having the problem removed and more on the person of Jesus as he lets him enter into his life. Jesus saw the greater need for this man was not in the healing of his son and the removal of this sickness, but in relationship with him, because it's within this solid, caring, tender, life-giving, empowering, hope-filled, peace with God, grace for each day relationship with the risen person of Jesus Christ that frames each issue in our lives and gives meaning. Mark in his gospel shows again and again that the significance of Jesus is not what he does for people, but in who he is for people. And right now, I picture myself as this man who would love the autism to be taken away. But I hold my son as he screams and flails. And when I stop to listen, I remember Jesus beside me asking, how long has Micah been like this? And as I tell him about it, I hand over the weight that I'm carrying and in the heaviness becomes light in his presence and care. I believe Micah will be healed, but not on this earth. I believe God has done something about autism and all the other forms of brokenness that we live with. He came to earth as a baby. He lived and died as a man so that he could crush brokenness. He rose to life again so that he can promise ultimate eternal life and healing to those who choose to receive it. Jesus wants children to experience his love. Learning disability does not mean spiritual disability. There are lots of resources available today for bringing up children within the church, and that is brilliant. And there is an increasing number of resources that are now available that make living with autism a little easier. Yet there are no resources and very few models of structures that help us to bring children and adults like Micah to Jesus. Why is that? It's too difficult to consider or create. It's not possible. Maybe something that's not even worthwhile. The disciples had virtually no idea what to do with this boy in, in Mark 9, and so they did very little. And sadly, that is sometimes the case in the story with the church. 
But we believe and we want to affirm today that children and adults with autism are made in the image of God. They are capable of being loved and known by Jesus. Christianity is not just a religion, a set of creeds, a body of knowledge, or a collection of Bible stories to be learned. It is a relationship with a living person that all of us were created to experience and enjoy. Let me show you a quote from Wayne Morris from Church Action and Disability. People with severe learning difficulties or severe communication impairments may not understand anything at all, but we should not underestimate the Spirit's ability to engage with every human being as they are and to make known to them the love of Christ, for love is something to be experienced, not understood. And we believe that God has made himself known to us. He has revealed himself to us through his word, through creation, but ultimately through his son, Jesus Christ, a living person. And children and adults with autism may be disabled in how they learn and how they process and conceptualize information, in how they express their experiences and how they and their families engage in a community of faith but they are not disabled in their spirits. They're not disabled in their ability to relate to and to know the living God. So what can we do? Well, it is interesting that when Jesus said, bring the boy to me in verse 20, it says they, plural, not the father, singular, but they together and under Jesus' rebuke, the disciples move closer to the boy, pick him up, and bring him to where Jesus was. And so we, as Micah's church family, and as a community where others living with autism have engaged, we, where it's welcomed and where it's wanted, we, as the body of Christ, as the hands and feet of Jesus, we have the privilege of bringing him, them, to Jesus. Or at the very least, bringing something of the heart of Jesus to them in our words and our actions. One writer has suggested that for people like Micah, who will not understand Bible stories or get quizzes, the most powerful way for Micah to understand and encounter Jesus is in others. It's in his peers, and it's in people who are familiar to him, who he feels safe with, who are warm, who are welcoming, and who are accepting of him. Jesus wants children to experience his love, but key to that is our role and privilege of bringing children like that to Jesus. Next thing we're going to look at is that Jesus uses children to teach us lessons. In, in two separate episodes in Mark chapter 9 and in the next chapter, Jesus uses children, and as many of us know, children were often seen as the weakest and lowest sector in that society. But Jesus uses them to teach his disciples and to teach the religious leaders of the day some very important and valuable lessons. 
And Jesus too can use these non-verbal children to speak his truth into our hearts today. How does that happen? Micah will never be up at the front and share his wisdom with you. He'll never read a passage of the Bible to you. He'll never pray for you, out loud anyway. He'll never do a short-term mission trip and come and report back. He'll never stand and sing on junior church Sundays. Perhaps he'll never be baptized and tell you about his faith, the way many of our other young people have. But the greatest lessons of my faith and life have been learned from caring for Micah. And he can teach you also if you're willing to learn. So we're going to think about some of these lessons and what is it that we can learn from Micah. (coughs) Micah teaches us a deeper understanding of being made in God's image, including dependence. We celebrate aspects of God's image in us as being creative, being rational, being logical, reasoning, These strands of God's being in our autistic children are rarely seen. However, in these children, we see another aspect of the image of God that perhaps the rest of us have covered over, maybe rejected. Being with a child who cannot talk, who cannot understand many words, who needs our constant help and supervision to function forces us to realize that being truly human requires dependence. Our children from an early age shout independence. I'll do it myself. I can do it. Don't help me. And underlying this, our need to be perfect, strong, able, denying that we may have any weaknesses. Micah unashamedly moves our hands to the object he needs help with. He's no qualms about accepting his limitations. I think his is a more biblical example of how we are to function in a church family. We're made to operate and relate deeply within community dependent on one another on various levels. And in creating mankind, God designed us by saying, let us make man in our image. The community of the Trinity is reflected in our need for each other. It's interesting, the only part of God's creation that did not please him was that man was alone. And so he designed humanity to be openly dependent, intrinsically linked, with no pretense, no facade, no self-sufficiency. So here's a couple of questions for us. Who are you carrying right now? And in turn, maybe more importantly, who will you let carry you in the parts of you that are broken and weak? and failing. So Micah teaches us about dependence on others. And having Micah among us forces us 
to serve God as well with pure motives. And this is another lesson that he can teach us. In the next paragraph in Mark's gospel, Jesus goes on to say, whoever welcomes a child in my name welcomes me. In serving and welcoming children and adults like Micah into our midst on a Sunday morning, into our homes, into our time, maybe into our hearts, can allow us to welcome Jesus. Now, if you've been with me in the park on a rainy Saturday, when you could be at home, sitting, watching the rugby with friends, dry and warm, you might be questioning that statement. As Micah's parents, I have to say that 99% of the time, I want to be inside with a cup of tea and not standing knee-deep in Helen's Bay at 9 o'clock in November, wondering how much sea air does he, does he need to sleep all night. But another autism mum pointed out to me recently, the blood, sweat and tears that we put in for these kids, which is way beyond what's required for typically developing children, is the closest thing we get to being like and understanding how Jesus serves us by his incarnation and his death. There's no reward. There's no positive feedback. It's not pleasant or preferential most of the time. Often it's painful. There's no thanks. The women who play with Micah for an hour and a half every Sunday morning don't get paid. They don't get public appreciation in church. They don't get people telling them what a wonderful job they're doing. Largely their work is unseen to the masses and they stand in the rain in the playground every Sunday morning. One of them said to me, I had a great morning of worship with Micah this morning. We lined up the stones in the presence of God. So Micah teaches us about our need. He teaches us about our motives. And the third thing is that caring for Micah pulls down the facade of what is normal. He teaches us about normality. Listen to this quote. Disabled people together with all other human beings reflect the image of their creator, God. They do not distort that image any more than anyone else simply because their bodies or minds do not conform to what society has defined as normal. It is true that these children need a lot of support to function in everyday life. And the level of their needs so far removed from the way we typically developing people function. However, it is a mistake to think that these children are abnormal and us as normal. Autism is only one kind of impairment. All parts of life have brokenness. And being around Micah reminds us of our own brokenness, albeit a different kind of broken. Disability is a normal part of an abnormal world. And that was the experience of Henry Nouwen, who gave up the prestige of being a world-renowned Harvard lecturer to work in L'Arche community where he became a carer with a man with severe learning disability called Adam. And here's Henry. And he writes about his experience working with Adam. 
first it seemed quite obvious who was handicapped and who was not, but living together day in and out made the boundaries less clear. Yes, Adam couldn't speak, but I spoke too much. Yes, Adam couldn't walk, but I was running around as if life were one emergency after the other. Yes, Adam needed help with his everyday tasks. But I too was constantly saying, help me, help me. And when I had the courage to look deeper, to face my emotional neediness, my inability to pray, my impatience and restlessness, my many anxieties and fears, the word handicap started to have a whole new meaning. The fact that my handicaps were less visible than those of Adam's didn't make them less real. The final lesson, prayer expresses dependence on God alone. As Jesus said to the disciples, it's only by prayer. And after the embarrassment and confusion at their failure to heal the boy, the disciples asked Jesus behind closed doors in private, they said to Jesus, why did this not work? Why could we not do it? And Jesus answered rather intriguingly, this kind can only come out by prayer. What does Jesus mean that prayer is the only way? And what might this mean for us today? Well, this episode in Mark 9 showcases and kind of contrasts the two, the faith of two sets of people. We have the Father on one hand and then the disciples on the other. And the Father, as Brian so graphically uh, revealed to us, he was at the end of his rope. He knows his limitations. And so he comes to Jesus and he begs him, please, Jesus, have compassion. Do something. And so he cries out very honestly, I do believe Jesus. But there's still part of me that doesn't quite get it. That is skeptical of all of this. So here's a dad that realizes his weakness and his inability and is far from perfect faith. And as such, he is the only person in this incident who is wholly and totally dependent on Jesus. The disciples, on the other hand, they, they kind of used to be where this father was. When Jesus first called them to follow him, they were uneducated fishermen and despised tax collectors. They were low in social status and moral reputation and religious qualifications. They were completely dependent on Jesus at that stage. Perhaps as time went by, they grew familiar and comfortable with the power of Jesus working through them. They drew too much self-importance from the attention that they now received as being followers, close, intimate, chosen followers of Jesus. And they began to believe that the gift they had received from Jesus was now kind of under their control. It was credited to their ability. And maybe, just maybe, it's into this subtle kind of unbelief that Jesus then turns around and says, Oh, you faithless, unbelieving generation. And perhaps it is this underlying attitude of the fathers of being in genuine need of Jesus. 
in genuine need of God in each and every day of life that shapes the kind of prayer that Jesus refers to here. Because you see, prayer is the expression and complete dependence and submission to God alone. It's the cry of the human heart that says, I know myself, I know the limited resources I have, I know the tasks that are ahead of me today, and so God, I need you here. It's a cry that reflects or echoes the words of the song we sung a moment ago, I trust in you alone, God.